fundamental issue now before our people can be stated. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. Councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Whether we shape the future in the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. Putting America first. This is The Right Take. Hello, everybody. How's it going? This is episode number 59 here of The Right Take, closing in on number 60 already. My goodness, feels like just yesterday we started this podcast. I am Eric Lindrum here with my co-host Jacob Grandstaff, and we have got a jam-packed show for you guys here today. This is an episode we, from the moment we both collectively realized what our main topic was going to be, we immediately started looking forward to this one. And that says a lot, especially considering that our last episode, of course, was our second ever interview with Tom Pappert, now with his new outlet, Valiant News. An hour and a half of Tom Pappert being Tom Pappert. It was fun. It was very informative. It defied a lot of some of the more mainstream narratives and rhetoric you may have heard. We highly recommend you guys check out that episode again if you have if you have not already, or listen again if you want another good laugh. So we are going to be talking about elections, again, as always, both here and abroad. Once again, I know you usually don't talk about foreign policy here or foreign happenings generally here on The Right Take, but more elections are around the corner as 2022 gears up, not just for the United States, but for some of the most important European countries. We are going to check in on our latest uh, certified Biden moment. Uh, You think it can't get worse, but then it somehow does with this guy. Uh, But before we get to that and our very, very spicy main topic, 
I like, again, I've said before, I like to hand out white pills here on the right take. I, I like to be a little more optimistic than, than most on the dissident right because I think there is a lot to be hopeful for going into 2022. And I'm not just talking about the midterms, but in just the immediate future, 2024, certainly and beyond. And there's one number that a lot of people do not think about when it comes to elections. Most people think approval ratings. They think about, you know, uh, the polls that showing like a matchup of the Democrat versus the Republican, whatever, whatever, the usual numbers that, you know, the 538, the Nate Silvers and all those number crunching nerds with bow ties love to cover. But there's one number that truly matters the most in any election, in any political environment before any of those. And that is voter registration. And this has only been reported on a handful of times here. But it is definitely worth noting because the latest voter registration trends seem to indicate what we already think to be true. And again, not just from the generic ballot of Republicans up seven points over Democrats on generic ballot. No, if these numbers are any indication, then yes, we are going to see a red wave in November and some even possibly calling it already a red tsunami. And it is happening, especially in the swing states. First, uh, Fox News reported that in Florida, the great state of Florida, Republican voters now outnumber Democrats by over 100,000 for the first time ever in the state's history. Now, it goes without saying that is a pretty darn big deal because Florida, of course, has widely been seen as the quintessential swing state. It, of course, is for the last 10 years, it was worth 29 electoral votes worth the same amount of votes as uh, New York, for example. It was one of the absolute biggest states in the country in terms of population, and it was seen as the quintessential swing state. It was seen as the state that, you know, any president had to win in order to have a shot at becoming president, of course. So all these recent elections that happened, uh, Florida, the presidential races in 2012 and 2016, uh, the races for governor and senator in 2018, all of which decided by like literally one point or less, as is the case in Florida, Florida politics, it's just always stupidly close. And keep in mind, with those elections, with Ron DeSantis winning, with Rick Scott winning, and with Trump winning in 2016, and Romney only barely losing the state to Obama in 2012, those all happened back when Democrats outnumbered Republicans in Florida. Presumably by 100,000, maybe even by more. Democrats always have generally been good at voter registration. And keep in mind, what that means then is for these previous elections where DeSantis barely squeaked it out over the, uh, the, the guy who loves to do cocaine in hotel rooms, the Republicans had to win those not only by turning out their base, but also by winning independence by a sizable margin, not just, you know, 51 or 52 percent. They had to win a decent number of independents and even maybe swing some Democrats, which DeSantis certainly did in his election, particularly performing well with black women at the on Election Day, among other demographics. But they had to really pull out other stops. They had to turn out their side and convert a lot of other people. Now, with Republicans outnumbering Democrats in Florida, all they have to do is just turn out their side and win like just half of independence, even just half, which again, if polls are an indication, independents are overwhelmingly breaking for Republicans right now. Certainly the Youngkin election was one example. Suburban voters are already swinging back to Trump over Biden. So they're going to do fine with independent voters. But this all, what this seems to indicate, obviously, is that, yeah, Florida is probably going to be solidly red. Trump won the state over Biden by four points, which obviously yeah. does not sound like much, but in the Florida standards, that's a landslide. Yeah, because a lot of those Democrats are still the old school blue dog Democrats who would vote for Democrats at the local election, of course, known as the term blue dog, because mm-hmm. even if there's a blue dog on the Democratic ticket, they're going to vote for him. But these are older people who were conservative, but would vote locally for Democrats. And so it, even though that number was skewed in favor of Democrats, it was a much more conservative state than just the registration would show. Exactly. And of course, if these latest numbers are any indication, 
DeSantis is probably going to win re-election pretty easily. All of his opponents for the Democratic nomination are complete jokes, you know, like Charlie Crist, the guy who's been a member of like five different political parties in his career, among others. But that is uh, – you can't understate the importance of this. We've talked about how some swing states like Ohio and Iowa, maybe North Carolina, traditional swing states are shifting pretty firmly to the right. But if Florida turns into a pretty decisively Republican state – as it already has, they got two Republican senators, a Republican governor, Republican-controlled legislature passing all these incredible laws like the parental rights, parental rights law, then that's huge. That is huge for future Republican electoral prospects if they have those 29, now 30, because remember, Florida was one of the few states that gained an electoral vote, gained one seat in the House of Representatives with the census. So now it's worth 30 electoral votes. So if Trump or whoever the nominee is in 2024 can just be guaranteed that 30 electoral votes right off the bat from Florida and for the immediate future, 28, 32 and beyond, that's a really big deal that will absolutely destroy the Democrats' chances of having a sizable majority in the Electoral College as they had in previous elections. But it's not just Florida. This has been reported by Reuters. Uh, One of the other swing states seeing a massive surge in Republican registration is Pennsylvania, another one of the most important swing states in the country for sure. Reuters reports that the GOP in Pennsylvania has converted four Democrats to Republican for every one Republican converted to the Democratic Party. Other swing states that are seeing similar growth include North Carolina, where Republicans are converting three Democrats for every one Republican converting to Democrat. And Nevada has also seen a significant rise in Republican registration, while Democrats barely rose in the same period of time. And a couple other states like New Hampshire and Arizona have actively cleaned up their respective voter rolls of inactive voters, which, as we all know, benefits Republicans because Democrats benefit more from voter fraud. So these are the numbers. This is this is not from Politico. You know, Jacob, I I think you said a while ago that when leftists who aren't totally insane want to sound the alarm for the left as a whole, they go to Politico. Right. Uh, right. This this is not Politico. This is Reuters. But that certainly to me sounds like an alarm bell piece right there. However, I've heard one. That is definitely one of those things where someone comes up with these, you know, wonky you know numbers just this fact fact based analysis and says hey this may not be juicy or spicy cultural topics but this is something that doesn't lie this does not bode well for them in november and of course i am here for that all the way so uh, you may have heard about oberlin college oberlin uh, is one of the most liberal colleges in the country in 2016 shortly after donald trump was elected there were a bunch of students who went to a local bakery, a bakery that has been there for – it's an institution in the town. It's been in that town since going back to I think before the Civil War. And these students, there are a couple of black students. One of them was seen stuffing bottles, like wine bottles, in his coat pocket. Another one didn't pay. Oh, boy. And the grandson of the owner confronted him about it, and they ran out. He chased them and got into a fight with both of them. The police were called. They were arrested. And, of course, the students – they decided to protest. Like 200 students decided to protest this bakery. They claimed that the bakery was racist. They printed out flyers, put it, those flyers all over town, uh, given, of course, the students' perspective of things, claiming that this grandson, this white grandson of the white owner, just saw these black people in his bakery and being natural white supremacists in this small Ohio town. He naturally assumed that they were stealing things because they were black. And, of course, they spread this rumor all over town. The business lost customers who had been loyal customers for years. They were branded as a racist by um, everyone in town, by the university. But what's interesting is the university itself was – it wasn't just an issue of these students going out on their own initiative and doing this. The dean of students at the university was supporting this. They actually let them use the university's printers to print off these flyers. They participated in these student-led rallies against this bakery. So the bakery naturally took them to court and sued them and recently – the court ruled – the judge ruled in the bakery's favor, 
and the and Oberlin College had to pay them thirty million dollars. Now they're wanting to appeal to the state supreme court, but I don't see that being overturned. That's going to be uh, that's going to be upheld. Of course, even if they want to appeal it to the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court is not going to take something like this, right? Because it's not something like of constitutional of significant constitutional law. It's pretty libel law yeah. is pretty well established. So, uh, but yeah, this is, it's uh, a civil suit. That thirty million—that's some—that's Nick Sandman money right there. Oh, oh my yeah. god! Well, I don't. I don't yeah, I, the we, fact we that he's going. Full... Yeah, the fact that he's going to Transylvania University it kind of makes me question how much money he actually did get paid. But that's that's a different. <laughs> fair topic. enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So, but either way, thirty million—that's no joke. It that's... is not. It is not a joke. Even for a like their endowment, I think is one point. Well, actually, I got the article. This is from Bloomberg. So another. Oh, by the way, you mentioned that whenever leftists want to sound the alarm of things they need to pay attention to, mm-hmm. Bloomberg is another one because that's the the quintessential neoliberal. Liberal financial news site, right? So this As, is by, of oh, course, given its namesake. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Um, so this is by Noah Feldman. Colleges should pay heed to Oberlin's costly libel suit. He writes, if colleges still thought there was little risk in taking up their students' causes, they should reconsider in light of what happened to Oberlin College. And of course, he goes through the fact that the appeals court ruled in favor of the bakery and upheld the thirty million plus in damages in this lawsuit. Uh, he writes, the case has gotten lots of attention as a touchstone of the culture wars and because of the free expression issues surrounding it. Although the case could still be appealed to the Ohio Supreme Court, even conceiv- conceivably the U.S. Supreme Court, it is now possible to derive some hard-headed lessons from the process thus far. For one thing, universities need to be extremely careful about how they interact with student protests if they want to avoid being held liable for their students' words and actions. And he points out how you've got a an extremely left-wing university like this that is hammering in these students' heads that white people are racist, that America is an institutionally, systemically racist nation. So naturally, those students are going to automatically assume that a small-town, white-owned business is going to be a racist because this is what they're taught in history class. This is what they're taught in their political science classes, that the vast, unwashed masses out there of white Americans in the heartland are racist. So they've already got this predisposed belief that if a black student is accused of stealing – then obviously he didn't steal. He was just accused of stealing because of his skin color. And this guy, Noah Feldman, he's trying to like sound the alarm. Hey, you colleges need to pay attention to this because $30 million isn't exactly chump change. Now, their, their endowment, they're one of the richest private colleges in the country. Their endowment is $1.2 billion. So they're not exactly going to be hurting for money, but this is still $30 million is not is not chump change. It's something they could have done. They could have kept – and put it toward another diversity course or another – I don't know. They could have built another building and hired 30 more non-binary uh, non, uh, you know, uh, DEI instructors or whatever with that money. So yeah, another white pill. The, the good guys win again in this one. So this is great because the thing is like they – I saw – I read an article on this. Uh, the owner who is the grandfather of the grant of the guy who ended up getting in a fight with these two students – he was uh, he was well respected in the community. He had lived there his whole life, and then uh, once the word got out that they were a racist institution, a racist establishment, because it's a college town, a lot of the residents are going to lean more liberal. Then people just assumed that it was true, and they stopped interacting with him. Like they stopped talking to him. They stopped going to his bakery. The business lost money. So for, to see this family vindicated in this is uh, really is a genuine white pill. That is that's fantastic, and the college suffers heavily for it financially, which is also a huge win. Yeah, thirty million isn't enough. I, w- I would prefer to see about three hundred million, but uh, we'll take what we can get. In unrelated good news, we talked a little bit about January sixth and the persecution that these protesters have faced. One of them, uh, actually, two of them have committed suicide yep. because of the charges they faced. Christopher Stanton, Georgia, and Matthew Perna. And what we've seen is about there are about eight hundred people who are arrested so far, and they're still looking for about twenty five hundred more that they're trying to identify. But about eight hundred have been arrested. About one hundred thirty to one hundred fifty have entered plea deals, mm-hmm. and. 
of course, when the left reads this, they're like, okay, so these people are admitting that they it's, broke the law. They're they, admitting that they're insurrectionists. Basically. Yeah, they've admitted that they're insurrectionists. So, you know, we're vindicated in our belief that these people were trying to overthrow the government. But most of these plea deals are for parading without a license. So they, these are misdemeanors. They warrant typically 10 days to two weeks in jail. The judges are giving them the harshest sentences possible, so some of these people are getting two months in jail. But they're still misdemeanors. Very few of these are felonies. And a lot of these plea deals are also coming about because you know the, the judges or whatever the prosecutors are threatening them. Like they're saying, hey, we'll put you away for life and you'll rot in jail unless you make a plea deal. So th- that's also part of it. Right, but also another big factor is the fact that uh, most of these people – assume that they're not going to get a fair trial in Washington, D.C. Because of course they're not going to get a fair trial. Because it's not just a matter of the court costs because they they don't have – most people don't have a lot of money. They can't crowdsource – they can't crowdfund because um, they've got to rely on, uh, on places like Go Send Go because GoFundMe won't let them crowdfund. And, so, and of course when they rely on Give Send Go, I think it, it gets hacked by leftists. So you know they really – they have no options at that point. So one of the main reasons why they were entering these plea deals is because there was no precedent set of one of the J6 protesters being acquitted. Well, that that streak has now been broken. This is from the Washington Examiner. A man who admitted to entering the Capitol building on January 6th was acquitted of charges brought against him on Wednesday afternoon after successfully arguing police let him through. U.S. District Court Judge Trevor McFadden found Matthew Martin, an engineer from New Mexico, was uh, found not guilty after a two-day bench trial. After being arrested in April 2021, Martin had been charged with entering and staying in an off-limits building as well as disorderly and disruptive conduct. He said, quote, I saw no violence. Uh, Martin claimed during the trial that he had entered the building because he had believed that he had permission from police who allowed him to enter according to BuzzFeed News. Although prosecutors tried to argue Martin should have known better as he walked past our closed signs and proceeded to record and encounter the chaos taking place. McFadden said during his decision that Martin's plausible belief outweighed the arguments according to the outlet. And there was actual footage of um, that McFadden viewed uh, that showed that Martin was being waved in by police officers. In fact, he hesitated before going in to make sure the police officers were going to let him go into the building. And there's we many, see yeah, vi- many videos. There's so of this many videos of this where the police are, if they're not waving the protesters in, they're standing aside, they're opening doors yep. for them, they're removing the barriers out of the way so these protesters can walk in. And the police argument, at least the Capitol Police argument, this is what they said. The reason they did that was because they didn't have enough manpower to stop these people from entering the building. But you know that that's plausible from some of the videos but whenever these people are peacefully walking up to the building and the people are and the police officers are moving the barriers out of the way without even telling them no you can't go in then it's kind of hard to believe that that's the reason why they were letting them in. I think that most of the police officers figured these people are peaceful. They're just going to walk around the, in the building, maybe protest, maybe yell and scream. They're not going to damage anything. But regardless of the reason, we do have video evidence of the police moving barriers out of the way and standing aside and waving the people in, allowing them to enter. And so the fact that this guy, Martin um, Matthew Martin, was willing to stand trial, willing to risk going to jail and being convicted and having a harsher sentence, this set the tone for future potential people to stand trial and be acquitted. In fact, there, we do have evidence. There's one tr- uh, person who pleaded guilty, and he has recently withdrawn his guilty plea. Yep, pulling a Michael Flynn, basically, which, again, absolutely can happen in, in any legal situations. Yeah, so, there, was a, there was a recent trial. One of the uh, more high-profile ones was someone who was, a, a, who was guilty of actually attacking the police officers, and he stood trial, and the news media was going berserk because they were saying if this guy is acquitted, it's going to set the precedent, and we're going to see a lot more of these J6 protesters end up 
being willing to stand trial because as it's been so far, that was the only trial up to that point because they were scared to stand trial because they knew that a D.C. jury being inoculated and indoctrinated with all of these anti-January 6th protester propaganda that they would not allow these people to have a fair trial. But this uh, this J6 defendant who backed out of his plea deal, this also from the Washington Examiner, a man charged in the January 6th riot at the Capitol, backed out of a plea de- of a deal to plead guilty just days after a federal judge declared another defendant not guilty in the first acquittal connected to the attack. Sean Witzman previously came to a deal to plead guilty to four misdemeanor charges next week, but he changed his mind after U.S. District Judge Trevor McFadden granted a full acquittal to another defendant, that is Matthew Martin, who was charged with entering a restricted building. So we're going to see a lot. There's so far, it's like 500 who have not stood trial, have not entered guilty pleas. I think you're going to see a lot more of them being willing to stand trial. And the more who stand trial, the more expensive this is going to get for the government because yes. it's much easier for the government to just get guilty pleas out of all these people, sentence them to two months in jail. And it, yeah, sure, two months in jail, it's not that much, but it's not the fact that they're trying to sentence them to harsh sentences. It's just about the headlines. They want to see those headlines showing that all these people are brought to justice because it's all political. Exactly. It well, all matters the, at the end of the day if they can get that guilty verdict in the Politico headline. Yeah, what was it that one you know deep state stooge said in an interview, like ABC or something right after January 6th? He said, a shock and awe campaign. We want to get as many convictions as possible. So yeah, yes. that's what this is all about. And this works out perfectly well, too, because not only are they starting to lose the, the legal side of things, but they already have lost, I think, the, in the court of public opinion. We talked a few episodes ago about, about how very suspiciously, uh, not so subtly, in Biden's State of the Union address, he didn't mention January 6th once. And what coverage do you really see of January 6th? Like, you, you don't see it as much anymore from Democrats or from the mainstream media. Like, yeah, they'll talk about it every now and then. Because they, they like milked this, it of everything it was worth. They, exactly. got, they already got everything out of it they could. They're not able to run on it anymore. They, their plan was that they would use this like Biden tried to use Charlottesville in 2020. They were going to run on January 6th all the way through the midterms to stave off the usual historical precedent that the incumbent party loses seats because they would just say, oh, Republicans are the party of insurrectionists, and they would put pictures of the Capitol being stormed everywhere. But like that obviously has not panned out for them as as the polls, as the registration numbers suggest. They're still going to get shellacked in November, and they may finally be realizing that at the very least they will never admit they were wrong on January 6th, but they at least just won't be keep talking about it anymore, which is good for us. And again, certainly if they start losing in, in court as well. So that was the shot. Here's the chaser. <laughs> when I saw this, I could not stop laughing. Michigan. So we all know that story that broke in 2020. Again, in the midst of uh, the, the COVID lockdowns, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the Wicked Witch of Michigan herself, imposed some of the strictest lockdowns in the nation. And there were protests. There were protests at the state capitol, peaceful protests, just like on January 6th, because they were really strict. And uh, she was another one, kind of like Andrew Cuomo. She infamously defied her own lockdowns. You know, her husband went to a, uh, a boat rental service on a lake in Michigan. And during the lockdowns in like June or July, in the middle of the summer, and tried to ask the proprietor, hey, can you rent us a boat? And the owner's like, sorry, we're, we're shut down for business because of the governor's mandates. And the guy was like, you know who I am? The governor's my wife. Like, so they, they tried. It was very highly, re- widely reported on that, that she, like, like the French aristocracy prior to the revolution, they defied their own rules, basically, and lived above the peasants. So the story goes, you know, that the feds pushed on us and the media pushed on us is that a bunch of hillbillies in Michigan said, well, let's kidnap the governor because she, you know, she's locking us all down. So they arrested like a whole bunch of guys, like a dozen guys with plotting to kidnap the governor. Well, oh, this was too good. On Friday, the jury ultimately ruled on four of the defendants. Two of them, Daniel Harris and Brandon Caserta, were found not guilty of conspiring, quote, to unlawfully seize, confine, kidnap, abduct, and carry away and hold for ransom and reward or otherwise the governor of the state of Michigan. On the same day, the jury was deadlocked 
on the verdict for two other defendants, Barry Croft Jr. and the alleged ringleader of the plot, Adam Fox. So four guys basically got off. Well, two guys got off free. The other two guys could go to a, a retrial, but given the amount of money the government has to spend on that, like you said, it's a financial burden for them. There's a chance that, you know, the, the case against those two might just be dismissed altogether due to that. So that just like January 6th, in a lot of ways, this Whitmer thing was kind of a prelude to January 6th in that they tried to use this to demonize, you know, Trump supporters and anti-lockdown people by saying that they're they'll try to overthrow the government. They'll try to kidnap the governor, even though it has been widely reported now that this really was just a bunch of feds, like federal informants, federal agents, both types, informants and agents alike, confidential informants, that's the official term, trying, going up to a handful of guys at these lockdown protests and kind of nudging them, trying to put the seeds in their mind of like, hey, we should kidnap the governor. And then once they kind of say, okay, we'll talk about it. There was no backroom meeting. It's not like a big militia group met in a barn in the middle of the woods somewhere and discussed it. Like they just kind of hinted at it like, oh, so they they were hinting at it, but that like they technically did meet in a barn and discuss it. But it was all led by the FBI informant, the guy, Dan Chappelle, who was known as Big Dan. He was so he was with this group, and then he didn't feel comfortable about them talking about killing police officers. Allegedly, this is what he claimed. So he went to the FBI. The FBI paid him sixty thousand dollars to rat these people out. So for the following months, like five or six months, then he was purposely baiting these people because the FBI is like, "Hey, we you know we're paying you sixty grand. We need some we need some juicy information so here." Pushing them harder and harder to yeah. say, "Hey, let's kidnap the governor, guys. Come on, let's do this so, already." So it was, and this came out in the trial. It was his idea to buy the explosives to you know learn how to use explosives. His idea to kidnap the governor. His idea to take her to a lake and put her out in a lake without a I don't know like without a paddle or whatever. Like all of this was his idea. He was baiting these people, and so most of the testimony against these people was from this entrapment from this FBI informant who was doing this stuff. And another guy who was also one of the informants, he ended up – they couldn't use his testimony because he was arrested for a felony battery for beating his wife to a pulp shortly thereafter. Oh, my goodness. And then there were two other FBI agents. The one, FBI sure one, knows how to pick them, don't they? Yeah, there was another one. He got arrested as well. So, and then another <laughs> one, he ended up being a double agent. They thought that he was going to be on their side, and he ended up committing a crime while he was working undercover with this group. So the whole – they ended up using about 12 different agents – to try to bring these guys down. And it's very obvious that the FBI is politically motivated, yep. that they're purposely seeking out militias because the FBI is run by people who still have in their mind that there's a big militia movement in America like there was back in the 90s after Ruby Ridge. Because in the 90s, you actually did have a legitimate yep. large militia movement out in the woods, especially out in the far west. And they still in their mind, they're thinking there's dozens of militia groups who are going to try to overthrow the government. We've got to infiltrate these people and bring them down. So they're they're throwing ridiculous amounts of resources, like paying the guy sixty thousand dollars for six months' work of just ratting these people out. It's just it, and it's the whole thing was pretty ridiculous to the jurors, which is why they ended up acquitting. And of course, if you read the mainstream media, they're perplexed. They can't figure out like why would they acquit these people? We have them dead to rights. This is going to send a message to right wingers that it's open season on governors. You know. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, yeah, the, again, they live in their own bubble when they just believe whatever they want to believe, when clearly the facts of the matter. I'm surprised by this. That a, Again, a jury ultimately found these guys not guilty because with the political pressure over this case, you would think that that ultimately would be that they would find them guilty just because they were terrified of the pressure. But uh, like the Rittenhouse verdict, I think this is a this is the biggest legal white pill, I think, along with the January 6th thing. The biggest legal white pill certainly since Rittenhouse was acquitted. Well, see, they can turn up the pressure on somebody like um, 
who was the guy who killed George Floyd? Uh, um, Derek Chauvin. They can turn up the pressure on somebody like Derek Chauvin. They can turn up the pressure on the with the Amal Arbery case. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, they only have so much media ammunition. Right. And if they're constantly making a high-profile trial out of every single politically motivated trial, you've got dozens of these every year. Eventually, the public is just going to tune it out. It's like, okay, another trial. I'm, I'm, exactly. I'm over this. So th- this is why they can't. They're running out of steam. They're running out of ammunition, and there's just uh, you know eventually the, they but, over they overdid it. They overstepped their they boundaries. Overstepped their hand. They, and so just one more uh, topic, one more point on this particular case. This guy Chappelle, he texted one of the defendants a thousand times between June and October of 2020. He was trying to, of course, he was trying to cultivate a close relationship with him. On five occasions, he offered to give him a five thousand dollar credit card if he would agree to go through like agree give him incriminating messages against himself and get this the guy was living in a basement with no indoor plumbing no toilet like these people were drug addicts who were ended up getting entrapped these are really really poor people who were victims really of the fbi trying to go after people who have been thrown aside by the system Mm -hmm. who don't have college degrees who don't have jobs who are struggling to make ends meet and are angry at the government and the fbi is uh, specifically targeting these people to try to bring them down, basically just to use as scalps. So to see the FBI just constantly losing, whether it's this or the DOJ losing with January 6th, it's all so good. I actually stand corrected, too. I said that January 6th thing was the shot and the Whitmer thing was the chaser. How about this, Jacob? The Whitmer thing is a shot in and of itself, and the chaser is if she loses this November. Because oh, she's, yeah. she's up for re-election and uh, appears her the front runner for the Republican nomination against her is James Craig, the former chief of the Detroit PD, who obviously has a thing or two to say about law and order, given you know that Detroit was a hotbed of that stuff. So that that especially is one of those cases where she could very well lose, and Republicans hope to make gains in a very important governor seat there. So imagine that with all this, that not only can she not get these people prosecuted because they dared to protest against her, because that's what it was. They weren't actually trying to kidnap her. They just didn't like her policies, and she couldn't stand that. It's the same with Biden and the January Sixers. But imagine on top of that, she loses with all the media on her side, and then she loses the election as well. Like she, That is one of – truly, she's one of the most hateable Democrats in the country, I think. She deserves – all of the suffering that she's getting between this humiliation and hopefully political humiliation in November as well. So we promised it earlier at the beginning of the episode, a certified Biden moment. I swear. I mean, it's well documented. This guy is just an absolute moron, probably borderline retarded. And due to his senility, obviously, his his dementia, whatever you want to call it, Alzheimer's, whatever's going on with him. If you were to compile all of Biden's gaffes throughout his entire career, which uh, gaffes, quote unquote, only really goes back to when he was vice president. He wasn't doing this kind of stuff when he was senator. But certainly since, you know, 2008, 2009, up to now, all of them compiled together would easily be the length of a Godfather movie at the very least. And the latest one, multiple one hit wonders came out of this event where he invited his old boss, Barack Obama, back to the White House. Uh, ostensibly, it was for an event on you know Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, for some reason, even though that bill's barely alive at this point since it was gutted by the Trump administration. I don't know. But obviously, what they were really doing here was a PR move. It was they're trying to bring back the only remotely popular national Democratic figure in politics today. The latest polls, I know uh, John Nolte of Breitbart talked about this. Trump has higher favorability ratings than any of the national Democratic figures, more than Biden, more than Kamala, more than Pelosi, and more than Schumer. Obama's the only one who, and this may do it be in large part due to the fact that you know he's just been out of office for so long. You could argue the same thing with George W. Bush. People think a little less harshly of Obama now. So Biden strutted his old boss back into the White House, and Obama completely took over the show, and no one cared about Biden or even Kamala anymore. And Obama himself was aware of this. Thank you, everybody. Have a seat. Have a seat. Thank you, Vice President Biden. 
Vice President. That was a joke. I just want to say, can you imagine if Reagan had done that with Bush Sr.? He wouldn't do that. That's no, something that Reagan would have never even thought of doing. You can there's joking and then there's being disrespectful or openly like throwing shade at one of your colleagues in front of everybody, which is that that's definitely what that was. Like because I think it's no secret. We were talking about this just before we went on the air. Obama and Biden don't really like each other that much. It's not like they have some JFK versus LBJ rivalry or anything, but they are both come from such different worlds, different backgrounds, different careers in politics. Certainly, again, Biden spent half a century in politics, and Obama was didn't even finish one full term in the Senate before he became president. So I think in a lot of ways, they they definitely still do not really like each other. They tolerated each other for the uses they each brought politically to their ticket. Now, apparently, Biden, now, what's funny is Biden tried to make a joke about it as well. I think the same joke in it. You're, this is the cringiest thing you can possibly imagine. It's so cringe that a lot of people were spreading this around thinking they didn't even realize that he was joking. This is how... This is just how old Biden has gotten, and how well, I won't say that. This is just Actually, how demented that this is just how demented that Biden has gotten to the point where whenever he tells a joke, people can't even tell it's a joke. Thank you very much. Please, my name is Joe Biden. I'm Barack Obama's <laughs> vice president, and I'm Jill Biden's husband. By the way, the only reason Jill's not here today, she's working. <laughs> He's teaching. <laughs> oh my God! The, the scattered, that's, that's, faint laughter. It, yeah, oh. it's, it's sad. It really is sad. But then there's this. This takes the cake. And I'm deeply proud of the work she's doing as first lady with Joining Forces Initiative. She started with Michelle Obama when she was vice president, and now carries on. Well, so that, uh, so yes, you heard that correctly while she was vice president. Now, here's the question. This has never happened before with the Biden gaffe. Who was he gaffing on this one? Was he calling Jill Biden vice president or was he calling Michelle Obama vice president? I think he recognizes that he wasn't Barack Obama's actual vice president, that Michelle Obama was Barack Obama's actual vice president. He was simply a figurehead. Yeah, and the, there the to school show, lunch policy. Yeah, he, he yeah. was there to be the old white man to, to get all the blue-collar white voters in the Midwest to think that, okay, maybe this president actually isn't – this maybe this isn't actually a racist administration against white people. We can vote for him because, hey, he's got old lunchbox Joe on the ticket. Yeah, I think he recognizes he was simply a figurehead. He was put exactly. on Obama's ticket simply because of his background. That's the only reason he was put on the ticket. And Michelle he, Obama was the actual vice president. And he was there to be like a, a self a specially appointed policy czar on certain issues. Like, you know, kind of like what Biden did with Kamala. He put her in charge of the border when that started getting out of control. Obama did the same thing with Biden. He declared Biden will handle the gun control response after the Sandy Hook shooting. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that being the vice president is already a really useless job. You most most vice presidents just kind of sit back and hope that their boss is the once in a several generation incident where they die in office or resign or something. So then they can just be, go directly to president without actually having to take it to the voters directly. But most of the time they either have to get elected in their own right or they end up failing and coming short, you know, like Al Gore, you know, so many of these others. So, Oh, you know something else that Obama gave to Biden to kind of get him out of the way? Yeah. He put him in charge of Ukraine. That's right. And well, we see how that certainly worked out for that kept Biden very, very happy for obvious reasons. And now, of course, looks like he he, he is in a tough position of trying to protect his investments versus uh, dragging us into another endless war, a potentially far more deadly war than what we just got out of. Speaking of foreign policy, though, on a much happier uh, international note, 
uh, one of my favorite things to talk about, as I've said before, I'm an elections nerd. I love talking about elections, primary elections here in the United States, voter registration numbers and whatnot. And certainly I love international elections. And there's there's a handful of them in 2022 in some of the most prominent countries. Uh, we had one a little while ago, just to set the context here. In uh, early April, uh, in Hungary, they had their parliamentary election uh, once again every four years, where, as in most European systems, the legislature, whichever party is the majority, then picks one of their own to serve as prime minister. So it's like their legislative elections directly affect their presidential elections kind of thing. Their executive, the legislative controls the executive, as it were. It's the same in the UK. It's the same in a lot of these cases. And in Hungary, like is Hungary is one of those several Eastern European countries that is most decisively based. They have solid right-wing national populist leadership, you know, Poland, uh, Romania, and some others, the Czech, a handful of others, mostly the former uh, Eastern Bloc states, for kind of obvious reasons, now have hardcore right-wing nationalists in office. And the most prominent example is Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban of the Fidesz party, who has been prime minister twice before two uh, non-consecutive terms. And most recently, he has been in this position of prime minister since 2010. Now, they had another election in April, for the for their uh their parliament their national assembly and it has 199 seats total so you need just 100 seats for a majority and basically every other party in the parliament all joined together in one big coalition called united for hungary all sounding so you know magnanimous all unanimous and everything and united against victor Orban said we're gonna end his his reign we're gonna end his rule because the eu he, he this guy's one of the biggest headaches for the eu he is not having any of this you know multicultural diversity stuff this you know trans queer whatever nonsense gender identity crap he is fighting for hungarians first He's fighting for Hungarian families. He is not allowing immigrants into his country. He's, he's, he's everything a right-wing national populist should be. And polls for the longest time seem to indicate that, oh, he'll probably win again, but it'll be narrow. He'll, his party will win by maybe five to six points. Uh, not quite. They got 54% of the popular vote, which is the highest vote share of any party in Hungary since the fall of communism in 1989. It is their largest landslide since 2010. They ultimately came away with 135 seats, so just two seats more than they had in the previous election. Absolute majority. They crushed the opposition completely, and it set the whole EU back, basically, you know, in terms of, especially in the context of the Ukraine thing, because he, like others, like these Eastern European leaders, basically kind of more or less says, I want nothing to do with this. You know, we should not get involved here, because, again, uh, Ukraine is not a NATO member. So that sets the stage for... Now, why they are getting a lot more concerned over another election coming right up here in Europe, over in Western Europe, on the opposite side of the continent, France. So, for those of you who don't know, uh, when it comes to French politics, there is one name that has been around for a few decades now that defines right-wing, the true right-wing politics. They have an establishment right-wing party that's also called the Republican Party, but the true right-wing is a party called that was formerly called the National Front, and it's called... Now it's called National Rally. And it's led by a woman named Marine Le Pen, who is the daughter of the founder of the original National Front Party, Jean-Marie Le Pen. She succeeded him as party leader, and she's run for president three times now in France. Uh, in 2012, where she came in third. In 2017, where she was the runner-up, and now she's running again here in 2022. So the French presidential election uh, has kind of a blanket primary system like what you see in a handful of states here in the United States, in, uh, in California, and Louisiana, and a few others, where a whole bunch of candidates run together in one big jungle primary, and if no candidate gets 50% or more of the vote, then the top two candidates go to a runoff election a couple weeks later. And that is what happened in 2017 when Marine Le Pen ended up finishing second 
to Emmanuel Macron, the guy who is now the president of France, who, of course, he was not from either the Republican Party or the major left-wing party, that being the uh, the Socialist Party, the party of the previous president, Francois Hollande. So he kind of burst onto the scene as, you know, Jacob, you and I were talking about this on our way to the studio, that he... Um, he kind of emerged from like he was an investment banker, right? He kind of emerged from the elite of Europe, and you know he was very much this this wonder boy. You know, he was, I think, he was thirty nine years old. When he has got elected. It's like one of the youngest heads of state ever. He, of course, was not from either of the major uh, political parties. He formed a new centrist party, you know, centrist quote unquote, whatever that means, which in Europe really just means center left. And his party then swept the legislative elections a month later, and. He has been basically the golden boy of Europe, you know, basically seen as kind of the spiritual successor to Angela Merkel as the new head of the EU, basically. And, of course, he is running for re-election again for another five-year term. And Marine Le Pen is running again, and the polls seem to indicate that it's going to be a rematch of the second round of 2017. It's going to be Macron first and Le Pen second. Now, what has them worried is that the opinion polling for a possible second round of Macron versus Le Pen is not quite what it was five years ago five years ago the final result ultimately was macron's 66 to le pen's 34 now for quite a while she was behind by double digits maybe 10 15 points give or take on track to lose pretty decisively to macron again in the last few weeks uh certainly since the the invasion of ukraine by russia macron's numbers have dipped they rose for a little while when he tried to present himself as an elder statesman he was the first world leader to talk to putin right after the invasion but that bump faded very quickly and with that, Marine Le Pen is on the rise. And now, the most average of the polls show her down by about six points. Some show her as close as two points or three points, which is within the margin of error. And at least one poll, right here, I have it here from Atlas Intel, has her ahead of him by one point. The first time ever that a candidate from National Front is potentially winning a primary, a runoff primary election. Very nice, very nice. Very nice. And the mainstream media is freaking out about this i've been seeing so many articles on like you know the main page of like yahoo or msn from mainstream media outlets all about the french election and all sounding the general tone here i'm gonna read just a few headlines here politico the white house is freaked out that putin's next big win could be in paris new york times how marine le pen threatens to upend french elections the Daily Beast. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Up, oh. upend French elections? Yeah. So she's going to upend French elections if she wins the French election. Right. Yeah, she's, she's, she's going to destroy like, elections by winning an election. That's kind of like how if Trump wins, he's going to undermine democracy. If he's democratically elected, then Trump will undermine democracy. It's clearly not democracy, Jacob, if the, can- the preferred candidate of the deep state doesn't win. Obviously, that's how democracy works in the 21st century in the year 2022. <laughs> the Daily Beast. Francis Marine Le Pen is the Putin fan who could screw us all. <laughs> this is my personal favorite. From, of course, it's from The Guardian. <clears throat> Get ready for a scary fortnight in French politics. A Le Pen presidency really is possible. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, but the, all the talking points, like, oh, don't get, you know, don't get complacent. She could actually win, guys. This could be Trump and Brexit. This and the one talking point you see a lot. This would be the end of Europe. Marine Le Pen would be the end of Europe. Because, yeah, she is really Eurosceptic. She has actually softened her stance on the EU a little bit. She previously was just like Nigel Farage. Let's have Frexit now. Let's get out of the EU. Go back to the franc as our currency instead of uh, the euro. We're done with this. But in recent uh, years, certainly for this campaign, she has gone back on that. And it now basically says, oh, I don't support uh, leaving the EU. I support reforming it. So ultimately... Especially what happened is this election is quite interesting. The dynamics here. There was another candidate running even further to her right, 
a television personality and journalist named Eric Zamor, who I guess, by all accounts, is the uh, is the Tucker Carlson of France, basically. He ran purely on just immigration. We're going to shut down all immigration. We're going to deport all immigrants now. We talked about this previously, Jacob, yeah. uh, at a town hall. He had very one very blunt two-letter, one-word answer for a woman. Uh, three word, three letter. Th- three letter. Oh, that, sorry. It was France. That's right. It was in French. Sorry, sorry. I was using the English version. But, but yeah, so he ran totally on immigration, whereas she's running on immigration reforming the eu also uh, and also some more economic issues she is pan she is uh, appealing very much to the you know those who are struggling the struggling working class the same you know, struggles we're seeing here in the united states with costs of living and the retirement age etc etc et so she's widely seen as softening her image so that is the, the it's pre-mortem i guess they're getting ready for a post-mortem analysis saying like oh she softened her image and that's how she won but to see this happening now when people thought the the what was it called? The Patriot Spring. Geert Wilders of, of uh, the Netherlands called it the Patriot Spring after Brexit and Trump. All these right-wing national populist leaders rising to power all over the place. We were seeing it in Italy. We were seeing it certainly in Eastern Europe, Sweden, everywhere. People thought like, oh, after Trump lost, you know, Biden and the normalcy came back that the Patriot Spring is dead. Well, the polls seem to indicate if there are any indication in France it's not quite dead yet, and it could actually be about to come back with a greater vengeance than ever before. Because it is true that if France were to elect someone like Marine Le Pen, then everything would change completely. That could not, not, not necessarily be the end of the EU, but it really would be a huge black eye for the globalist New World Order, as it were. If you notice the tenor of the press over the past 10 to 15 years, well, not even 15 years. You go back 10 years, and it wasn't this way. It really started in 2014. The way the press covers elections, every single election in every Western country is always an existential crisis. Yep. Because if the, if the neoliberal candidate, if their preferred neoliberal candidate loses the election, then it means their version of democracy and their version of the world order will completely evaporate. Mm-hmm. And we will slide back into authoritarianism and fascism and the world as they know it will end because the reality is their world will end. If a Le Pen wins, if a Geert Wilders uh, were to win, if you had an actual populist win in the UK, not somebody like Boris Johnson, if you had a Trump in 2024 win or someone even further to the right than Trump, then their world would end because it would show that the general population is no longer under their spell. Because as it as it currently stands, the educated voters in these countries still read them like The New York Times is still in business. Uh, the, the, Daily Beast. Yeah, the election Guardian. of Joe Biden did not put the New York Times out of business like a lot of people were claiming. Like the mm-hmm. educated population still follows these news outlets. Bloomberg is still in business. But yeah, every single election, they've got every they've got to manufacture this. This is the second coming of Adolf Hitler. This is Mussolini on the ballot. We've got to do whatever we can to stop it. And uh, really, it shows the, the invasion of Ukraine has really uh, poked a lot of holes in their world because the prime minister, uh, Mario Draghi, of, of Italy, just to give an example, like he was telling the Italians, you know, you can either choose. Do you want Putin or do you want air conditioning? If you use air conditioning, you're helping Putin to prosecute his war. And this this is the this is now the narrative like Europeans, you're going to have to suffer because this is a war to defeat Putin. One woman on Twitter, she um, one Italian woman, she filmed herself turning her AC on as soon as she turned the AC on and started playing the Russian national anthem just to show oh that if God. you turn the you know, you can choose if you want to play that air conditioning, you're helping Putin. But this is and uh, Europeans are going to stand for it. Like uh, yeah. Europeans are going to they're going to get sick of this. Like uh, we want to live our lives in our country. We don't want to live our lives to support your world order. Like we, we didn't choose this. And this is what we pointed out with the Truman Doctrine in the past. Americans didn't choose to be the world's police force. Our elites chose that for us. 
and they are trying to sell it to us on the basis of nationalism. Like we've got to go fight them over there or so they're they going to come, come over and, here. And eventually people are going to get wise to it and they're going to be like, OK, why do I need to pay $10 a gallon for gas? Like, How does that how does that help? Me and my family and my country and the I, world. Be I a love to place. see like the mainstream media reports, like saying like for a little while there. I don't think they're doing it anymore, but they were saying like, oh, but the gas prices are higher than ever because of the Russia Ukraine crisis. But Americans say they are willing to pay that price to stand up to Russia. They, they always say that. They say Americans say a majority of Americans say they never show any proof. They never conduct a single interview, man on the street style, to ask anybody that. There are no polls anywhere to indicate that. They just say it. No, the, and, the fact that people they they would argue the fact that people are paying it is proof that people are willing to pay it to defeat right. Putin. Yeah, <laughs> they have to get to work, so they're paying five dollars in gas. So the fact that they're still gassing up, apparently, they don't have a problem with it. Oh uh, yeah, I, I hate the media so much, and that's why I want to see them cry and cope and seethe on election night when and if Le Pen wins. Because again, the primary election is April tenth, which uh, by the time we're recording this, of course, that will have happened, and we'll know then for sure whether or not she actually made it to the second round. But by all indications, she will, and the second round will be April twenty fourth. So let's see if come April 24th, there will be crying and wailing from the Guardian to the Times. It will be truly, truly glorious. So I didn't even know about this until yesterday. I was out. I got into D.C. yesterday. Um, yesterday is Saturday. Yeah, today uh, Saturday. Yesterday was um, Thursday was opening day. So I went to opening day, did not go yesterday to the Nats game, but I did go into D.C. later, like around noon. But apparently in the mor- yesterday morning around 830 um, during rush hour, there were a bunch of climate freaks who blocked 395. So right in right at 7th Street, which is the, the most busiest stretch of interstate in D.C., uh, about 20, about 12 to 20 of these climate freaks got out there and sat down on the interstate and blocked traffic. Now, what's interesting, this is just this kind of unrelated to uh, the white pills that we're covering, but what's interesting is we did talk about the trucker protests and how they were allegedly going to shut down D.C. They were going to block the Beltway. They were going to stop hundreds of thousands of people from getting to work and stuff. And, of course, none of that happened because they don't know how to protest. They don't know how to block traffic. They, and it, basically they're just based good, decent, polite people. The conservatives aren't going to go out and block people from getting to work so they can feed their kids. It's just not who they are unless it's something – like unless they themselves are being stopped from feeding their kids, they're not going to stop anybody else from getting to work to feed their kids. And this is why we discussed that unless this was actual an actual COVID man, uh, vaccine mandate – that stop people from going to work if they weren't vaccinated. You weren't going to see conservatives actually do what the Canadian truckers did. But if you see the way the climate activists, this is like this is like a dozen climate activists who accomplished more in about an hour than the entire trucker protest did over the span of a week. Like That's they just depressing. they literally just got out there and sat down on the interstate, and it took an hour for the police to get out there and redirect traffic and get them all arrested and taken out. But it just shows you know people who are fanatics are going to be much more effective at you know disrupting normal people's lives than people who are just decent good normal citizens which is why the right is at a disadvantage and when you're talking about protests when you're talking about active political activism if you don't get people this is why we talked about how the pro-life movement is really the closest thing we have on the right to the causes that the left champions because people on the right who are ardently pro-life, myself included, mm-hmm. they understand this is an issue of life and death. And so they understand this is not just a political issue, but it's a spiritual issue. It's a moral issue. And so with something like these climate activists, they see climate change as a moral issue that really the future of humanity hangs in the balance. And they this- see it as their existential threat. I think Greg Gutfeld said it nicely a while ago. It's relatively outdated, but he said it a while ago back on Fox News that, you know— it- 
at the height of, you know, when Islamic terrorism was still very much a thing, certainly the decade after 9-11, but also in the mid-2010s with all the terrorist attacks every other day in Europe, he said that the climate change, global warming, whatever they want to call it, it's not real, but it's all the same. That to the left is what radical Islam was to the right. You know, it was the existential threat in mm-hmm. our world today. And of course, obviously, Islamic terrorism is still around, but it's not the biggest threat to us anymore. Certainly not compared to just a, a few years ago and certainly not 20 years ago. But to them, they have the added advantage that global warming is always something that's going to be, you know, it's going to be present at all times because it doesn't just affect one or two countries like terrorist attacks do. It affects the whole world, if it were real, that is. So, and this is this kind of ties into our main topic today, which is going to be the the groomer movement that's finally coming to light. The, uh, the basically the spirit. It's almost like a, a spiritual crusade that you're seeing with the climate change stuff. This is the way the left, the activist left, sees every single issue. Everything is a moral existential crisis, and um, as we're going to show with some of the clips that we have from teachers, this is how they view the LGBT movement. This is a moral existential crisis. People who don't agree with the movement, they want to erase people from existence. In other words, they want to kill people, kill people's existence, even if they're not physically killing them. And this is the way the climate change activists see it. This is the way the pro-choice activists see it. And if the right doesn't understand this, that it's not simply about politics, because if you're trying to talk to normies on the right and get them excited about this stuff, get them passionate about this stuff, most of them, it doesn't click Unless you hit a ner- hit an emotional nerve. So here's mm-hmm. an example. Let's say, for instance, that I'm, I'm trying to convince somebody that we need to stop. Let's say if I'm pro-Ukraine, I'm trying to convince somebody that we need to stop the war in Ukraine by any means necessary. A person here who's struggling with gas prices, they're just not going to get it. But then I show if I can show them footage of a Russian bomb killing children mm-hmm. and killing women, if I can show Russian soldiers raping Ukrainian women, then I've hit an emotional nerve. This yep. is especially prominent with women. With women voters, then I've hit an emotional nerve, and they're like, yes, we've got to stop this by any means necessary, even if it means risking nuclear war. And even if it doesn't affect us directly. Yes, that's these people are willing to sit out on the interstate and risk being killed because they believe their cause is just to the point to where they're willing to give their lives for it. And this is what you have to try to make people understand, and this is why the groomer – using that groomer terminology is so so powerful because few things are more powerful emotionally, spiritually than the idea of threatening a child's vulnerability and innocence. Yes, that that is correct. So here's an example. A lot of people – everyone knows about the Florida bill. Everyone who follows politics knows about the so-called don't say gay bill. Uh, What was the – Eric, do you remember the name of the the Florida bill that DeSantis signed that caused this outburst from Disney claiming that they're going to do everything they can to fight this? I don't remember the exact name of it, and that obviously is probably just a failure on my part, but also an indication of the success of the media campaign, that it is more commonly known as don't say gay, even though, as DeSantis has pointed out, it doesn't say that anywhere in the bill. Well – I would say more people probably know of it as the anti-groomer bill, and they do whatever it is actually called because that's basically what it does. It, it stops it, – it's aimed at stopping groomers from grooming children in school, and we're going to get to the definition of groomer here in a second. I just found it, by the way. It's HB 1557, also known as Parental Rights in Education. So, so just, it's a parental rights law is right, what right. it really is. But so just to give – we know the background on it. We know why Disney freaked out about it. But just to give people an idea of what this bill is trying to protect children and parents against, we give you this. 
This video is for language teachers. If you don't know who I am, my name's Blossom. I use they, them pronouns in English, A in Espanol, y en Francais. I'm an educational consultant for gender and sexuality, and I specifically did my research on transgender people's attitudes towards pronoun usage in their native and additional languages. And this is me telling you that within whatever language you speak, non-binary people exist. And non-binary people are creating language so that they don't have to adhere to the gender binary. So we, as language teachers, need to be teaching our students, giving our students access to this language, especially for our non-binary students, regardless of if that language is accepted by a linguistic regulatory body. Okay, and uh, this is one instance where you guys in our audience should be glad this is audio only because that thing on the screen is hideous. It's a dude in drag wearing a dress, makeup all over his face, pink eyeliner, pink and orange eyeliner. He's wearing a wig. He's a teacher. And that is a problem. Wouldn't you agree, Jacob? Let me let me put it this way. If I were a parent, that guy would not be a teacher for very long. No, he, oh, I agree with you on that one. He would I that parent teacher conference would get uh, very, very uh, WWE worthy very quickly if I were in that parent's position. This has been my first year in preschool with a class of my own, teaching alongside another queer neurodivergent educator, and we have been rocking our two's class. We've been talking about gender and skin color and consent and empathy and our bodies and autonomy. It's been fabulous. I know this with the last guy too, but it occurred to me here. Look at listen to how happy she is. How happy, how thrilled she is to be talking about, you know, sex. Sexual intercourse and genitalia with little kids. Well, this goes back to what I was pointing out earlier about the climate activists. A lot of people think, okay, well, we can reach these people. And, and, you know, Christians, I understand we want to reach people with the gospel. But the thing you've got to understand is when – this is the same – this is true with communists as well, actual Marxists, not Democrats that Republicans call communists, but the actual real thing is they don't really have any better angels for you to appeal to. Because in no. their mind, they are fighting a moral crusade. You are the one who needs to appeal to your better angels to understand that you're wrong and that they are fighting for truth, justice, and good. They Equality, are, they are, equity, yeah. opportunity, whatever they want to call it. Yeah, so in their minds, you are in the wrong. You are the, you are the person here who needs to reach down and connect with your better angels to better understand how to make the world a better place. So – you cannot appeal to these people and no. change their mind and win them over. They have no sense of morality. They have no sense of like a, a higher being or a greater something that is greater than them. They 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 think the cause itself is the ultimate end goal, and because well, they don't have any their, sense of morality or virtue. That that is their morality. Though. That's the thing. Like in their minds, they are pursuing morality. They well, are pursuing their morality virtue. is is degeneracy. That's what it is. It's it, the it freedom is to be degenerate. It is objectively degeneracy, but in their minds, they are pursuing objective morality. They are being virtuous this is actual virtue by making the world a safe place are, for non-binary people let and me, transgenders. Let me, let, let me rephrase that then. They have no sense of morality built on any definitive structure. Their entire worldview is based on there being no set definitions of anything. There's Correct. no yeah. foundation. There, there's nothing that came before them. Everything that does come before them, any sense of a foundation, any basis for terms or language or what have you, is wrong and needs to be torn down. That's the thing going back to what that, that first guy, guy in a dress, was saying about like, oh, language with non-binary people. It's very enforced to the fact that uh, several languages, Spanish, Italian, and a few others, they have gendered language. This is where the Latin X thing came from. In, in, I took a Spanish classes in, in college. In Spanish, if you have an adjective, 
you either end it with the letter O in reference to a man or A in reference to a woman. I think Italian is the same way. And that, of course, because of there are only two genders. That's a fact. And that's how it has always been for the longest time. But now they're trying to say, oh, no, no, that's sexist. That's that's transphobic. We need to uh, we need to create a new version. And that's why they say, you know, Latino or Latino is the prime, prime example. They say, oh, no, Latin X, which Biden pronounces as Latinx, which just sounds like the, the brand of tissues. Um, but that's the funny thing, too, is that is one great form of resistance they are facing is that obviously most real Hispanics don't care in the slightest about that they do not they take one look and be like who do you gringos think you are telling us to change our language you know that that's our language you leave it alone you want to do that in your english language do it there don't don't mess with our languages and i'm sure the italians probably feel the same way but that's that's the point he was getting at before here is another one for you guys I, i'm sorry i know this this may or may not be legally classified as torture but it is very important to talk about this for the sake of the main topic and to emphasize how important this battle really is your students call you by your first name or Mr. or Miss? Great question. This is actually a classic question. Here's your answer. Currently, my students just call me Desmond or Desi. First name. However, I have been at schools that go by last name. Those schools, I go by Teacher Fambrini. I am gender fluid, so I don't go by Mr. or Miss. I go by Teacher because I am a teacher. So Desmond, Desi, or Teacher Fambrini. Let me introduce you to our non-binary alpaca. The kids voted on a gender-neutral name, Alex, for them. Alex was there to help me during the really quiet moments when nobody would talk during virtual learning. Yes, they were so quiet. But then I also- it, it, It's a hand puppet, just so you guys are aware. Again, this is audio only. So I took it as an opportunity to teach my students about how to respect people's pronouns. Did Alex ever get misgendered? Yes. But then it opened up some teachable moments about what to do when that would happen. For example, hey, Mr. Vung, did he just wake up from his nap? Oh, do you mean did they wake up from their nap? Yeah, they just did. I would apologize quickly, make the correction, and move on. <laughs> I started off modeling how to correct somebody, and then afterwards, my students would correct each other whenever somebody would misgender Alex. Oh, see, God. That, see, that's this the punchline. This is, yeah, exactly. That is the punchline. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to teach kids to talk and act like non-conforming gender, non-binary, transgender, et cetera, et cetera. So the kids will end up correcting each Patrolling other. Controlling each other. And so once these kids become adults and they enter the corporate world, they will already know from a very young age how to patrol people who are not enlightened to this genderism, this transgender. No, it's not even transgender. Like it's, this, is, this is a whole new level. I mean, like transgenderism it, is bad, but this is— We don't even have a word for it yet to describe what exactly this is. Like this is, so, this is uh, insanity uh, beyond— the English des, uh, description. Uh, th- they, they will learn – basically, they will learn how to be groomers when they are adults, just like they were groomed as kids. Representation in the classroom matters. My kids were fifth graders, and they still got a kick out of Alex. Oh, yes, and here's Alex's friend, Lincoln the Lama, who goes by pronouns he, him. At first, my students thought that he had very feminine features, so they thought that he was a girl. And this is why we should never assume somebody's gender just based on what they look like. All right, Lincoln, say something. Hello. My students were really surprised how low his voice sounded. Oh, my God. There, there it is again. Aren't there. you thankful for TikTok? TikTok is the greatest invention ever. It's like, Chinese spyware that is promoting the most obscene degeneracy that, by the way, you know, none of this would be allowed in China. If someone tried to, if this guy, this Asian dude with a hand puppet, a, a non-binary alpaca hand puppet, tried to pull that in a Chinese classroom, uh, he would be going to pay a visit to the Uyghurs, I think. 
I was thinking more or less like where thanks to TikTok, we now have these guys coming on video and basically telling their audience that they assume agrees with them what they're teaching their kids in school. Like without this, they wouldn't even know. Because another thing they're doing is they're teaching these kids how to hide their beliefs from their parents. Mm -hmm. They're actually instructing these these teachers are going on TikTok and saying, "Okay, I'm here's how I'm teaching my kids not to let their parents in on what they're being taught at school. Exactly. That is a good point. Yeah, that, that I agree with that as well. They certainly are exposing themselves. And that's why, again, we mentioned uh, an account called Libs of TikTok that's active on social media that shares this kind of content to expose them, to show how insane they are. I have seen far too many Libs of t- TikTok videos for my own good. And there, I would say definitely the, uh, the, the guy in the blazer was definitely the weirdest one for me because it was a little hard to tell which gender he was. The first guy in the dress was definitely the second worst. The woman looked normal enough, even though what she's saying wasn't normal. And this Asian guy definitely looks normal enough, too. But I've seen some freaky, freaky people on TikTok. It is, it is unpleasant. But it is necessary to show you this stuff and to show you the influence it is reaching in the corporate world, as we said. And they're not waiting for these kids to grow up. It's already happening in the corporate world. Which brings us, of course, to the one that is, I think has done the most to mainstream this, again, to our benefit, unintentionally on their part, and it's courtesy of the mouse, Disney. So Disney, of course, they're, they're based in Florida. They have Disney World, one of their two major American theme parks, the other is in California, in Florida. So, of course, there was a lot of lobbying from the LGBTQ barbecue XYZ crowd to have Disney formally come out against the parental rights law. To say, oh, this is discriminatory against you know, our, our, our pansexual five-year-old dreamers. And, of course, DeSantis basically told them to, to get bent. You know, he, he was not going to take any of their crap. And he floated the possibility of revoking the special self-governing status that Disney World apparently has. That's something I was not aware of, but that is a thing in Florida. And he's taking them head on just like he took on the cruise lines over COVID mandates. He is not backing down. So props to DeSantis for that. But Disney recently had some videos leaked um, courtesy of, I believe it was Chris Rufo, you know, one of the uh, the anti-critical race theory guys. Uh, the videos were leaked. It's been reported on by the Federalist and others. And they were having multiple Zoom meetings, executive level Zoom meetings to talk about how they are promoting uh, in their terms lgbtqia plus that's the latest uh, incarnation of the acronym this is one video you you gotta listen to this is uh disney corporate president carrie burke it's a little over a minute long it's a lot less intolerable than those freaks on tiktok but it's every bit as disgusting i'm I'm here as a mother of of two queer children actually um uh, one transgender child um um, and one pansexual child. I'm going to stop it right there real quick just to say any time and every time you hear an adult in 2022 say, I have a transgender child, that's not really what you should hear. What you should hear is I physically and psychologically and mentally abuse my child because that's what's happening here. You're abusing your kid into thinking they're pansexual. Remind me, Jake, do you know what pansexual means? I Because I don't. It probably means that the kid can change their gender every day if they want to. I, I thought maybe it just meant they were sexually attracted to pots and pans, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> these days, uh, who knows? Who knows? And, of course, transgender meaning, you know, it's a, a little girl who thinks she's a boy or vice versa. Um, and and also as a leader. Um, and that was the thing that really got me because I have heard so much from so many of my colleagues over the course of the last couple of weeks um, in open forums and through emails and phone conversations and um, I feel a responsibility to speak um, not just for myself, but for them, um, to all of us. We, we had a we had an open forum last week at 20th where 
Um, again, the home of, of really incredible groundbreaking LGBTQIA stories over the years where um, one of our execs stood up and said, you know, we only have a handful of queer leads in our content. Uh, okay, hang on. I got to stop you right there as well. LGBTQIA, XYZ, barbecue, KKK uh, characters, it was stories over the course of so many years. Uh, name me, name me any like handful of prominent, you know, LGBTQ whatever. Because the the thing is, they're going back now and again, writing history, rewriting history, revising it, retroactively claiming, oh, these people have always existed. The LGBTQYZ crowd has been around for generations. They've just been unheard. Okay, no, this has only been a th- phenomenon, a trend, a fad that's only been in for the last ten years. Like, ten years ago, Jacob, Obama and Hillary were both against gay marriage. 10 years ago and look at where we are now and i went what i that can't be true and i and i and i realized oh it it actually is true we have many 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 lgbtqia characters in our stories and 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 yet we don't have enough leads so she's complaining about the fact that like oh we have characters who tick off all these degenerate boxes but they weren't the main characters so so what they want is in 10 years those major movies whatever movies are come come out within the next 10 years to have lead queer characters mm-hmm. and that kids will grow up with with queer heroes it's it's like what they're doing right now they're remaking those again the movies from the 90s known as the disney renaissance they're remaking those and they're casting minorities as the characters now like the little mermaid is going to be played by a black actress like this so they're doing the racial remake now and then in another 10 years it's going to be the gender remake so but yeah this is disney this is one of the biggest companies in america certainly one of the biggest cultural icons in american history they've been around since i think like the 40s they've given some of the most created some of the most iconic childhood characters i i mean I'm going to go off on a limb here. I'm going to take this moment to say this, not to sound like a hipster. I've never been crazy about Disney. Disney, I was never a huge fan of Disney, even as a kid. I liked some of the movies. You know, I liked Lion King. I, I like Toy Story, and I still do like Toy Story. The Toy Story movies are great. Those are wholesome. Those managed to steer clear of all this crap, even, you know, with the most recent one, the fourth one. Um, but I was never as into Disney as I was to other, like, cartoons and movies from my childhood. But think of how many kids grew up on the Disney movies, singing along to all those famous songs, you know, from Aladdin or, or whatever and all those other that's movies. That's why most of the people who visit Disney World are adults. They're basically – That's a good point, yeah. They're, kids. they're all cult, Disney cultists who grew up on this mm-hmm. stuff, and they, now they – that's why there's more adults at Disney World than there are kids usually. It was kind of like the original Marvel. You know, Marvel is going to take over as, as like a big pop culture cult now, although, of course, Marvel is owned by Disney as is Star Wars. So the point being the Disney Corporation that owns these properties from – from all the Mickey Mouse characters to Star Wars to Marvel to anything else that they own. They are going to push this in all of their media now. And it's going – whether you know you can try to patrol your kids all you want, cancel a Disney Plus subscription, what have you. It's still going to seep into the pop culture. You're going to walk by you know, uh, an aisle in, in Target with the kids, you know, the toys or whatever, or the Disney-themed backpacks. And it's going to be some queer black woman character on the backpacks or whatever. Things like that. They know how – Deep, in, deeply ingrained Disney is in society, and they're going to use it to their advantage any way they can. And that's why people are calling out Disney and should be. And you're seeing like lots of people canceling their subscriptions, lots of people saying they won't go to the theme parks anymore, which is a good start. But it's going to take a lot more than that. It is going to take direct action against the corporation, you know, for violating Florida law. In this case, mm-hmm. certainly 
but beyond that as well. Well, so one of the one of the debates in the, on the right right now is: is it worth trying to boycott Disney? Because Disney mm-hmm. is such an institution in American society. Is are you are you better off just criticizing Disney and hoping that they change, or are you better off just completely boycotting, not going to Disney World, not going to Disneyland, not buying you know Disney Plus, not buying their subscriptions, not buying their movies? And I would argue that it is because back in remember whenever Disney bought ABC back in the nineties, whenever Ellen DeGeneres, I mean uh, Ellen DeGeneres <laughs> came out of the closet. Uh, the AFA, the American Family Association, actually led a boycott of the show Ellen, and nice. Disney immediately pulled it. They immediately pulled Ellen off the off oh, the air because they couldn't so they, they couldn't afford it. Couldn't afford to lose the money. The boycotts, in some instances, do work, especially if parents feel like a company is targeting their children. Now, um, just to, to go back to what I, my larger point about the fact that these people see this as a religious crusade or a moral crusade. Disney's activism partner, Nadine Smith of Equality Florida, told LGBTQ employees that DeSantis and his spokesperson, Christina Pushaw, want to, quote, erase you, quote, criminalize your existence and, quote, take your kids. Now, Christopher Rufo, in his tweet, he claimed that this is a wild conspiracy theory that Republicans wanted to kidnap gay people's children. But that's not exactly what they are claiming. It's actually true that we do want to take these predators' kids away from yes. them because they're not capable of being we responsible take, parents. We do need to take their kids and put them in foster home. In take foster those home. kids, take those kids away from Carrie Burke and others like them who are trying to instill in them pretty much from birth. Oh, you're trans. You're pan. You're, you're not really a particular gender. Yes. Take those kids away for their own safety and throw charges at Carrie Burke and all the other people like her. But let's think about what, what else she's saying. She's saying that they want to erase you and criminalize your existence. Now yes. we, I mean, a lot of, a lot of conservatives would criminalize say, their existence. Criminalize their attempts to indoctrinate other people with it. Yes, well, a lot of conservatives say, no, this is just hyperbolic. You're just blowing things out of proportion. We really don't hate trans people and gay people and all this other stuff. But when you think about what she means by erase you, yes, we do want to erase them from being able to come out and advocate this stuff because they cannot exist as, you know, fully normal, non binary without advocating for it. They can't, we, we do want to criminalize their existence in the sense that we want to, like you said, criminalize their ability to preach their gospel of non-binary transgenderism, LGBTQIA+, whatever else that they – this basically mm-hmm. this gender identity that they're trying to force on people. Because it is so harmful to them. You see, you see all the stats. There's memes about it. But the stats that – how many, like 60 uh, percent of trans whatever people try to commit suicide? Or maybe it's not 60, but it's somewhere, I think, like it's a high number that they attempt suicide at some point in their life, regardless of whether or not they get, you know, the gender affirming surgery. Studies showed that even if they get the treatment they want, they get, you know, you know, they get cut up and they get take all the hormone blockers, whatever. They're still miserable and they still don't try to kill themselves. It, and they're trying to preach this to kids that minors, little children, prepubescent children can have these surgeries done to them. They can be given these hormones, and these other treatments, estrogen, testosterone, what have you. And this is stuff that's irreversible, Mm -hmm. that permanently damages their bodies at a very young age. It's no different. I would argue it's even worse, but for a better comparison, it's like, you know, trying to indulge anorexic people and to say, oh, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You do need to lose weight. You're you're strong and independent. You're Mm -hmm. in your in your valiant fight to lose weight. You go, girl, you go, young man, whatever. You're indulging them in a mental illness that they have i mean not the kids i'm saying but the people trying to teach them this those people are mentally ill those trannies we just showed in those tiktok compilations the guy in the dress the the asian guy with the sock puppet they're mentally ill mentally unstable they should not be allowed anywhere near 
children. Which brings period. us to the definition of groomer. Yes. Now, this, in my opinion, is the best marketing campaign that the right has come up in my lifetime. Mm. This is one thing that the it's right powerful. has always trying to play catch up to with the left, and that is marketing. Leftists are fantastic marketers because they know how to appeal to people's emotions. Because take race, for instance. You know, you can choose. Do you want to stand with the racist or do you want to stand with the anti-racist? It's the marketing campaign that normies simply don't have any defense mechanism to fight back against. So they naturally fall into the leftist category, even if those normies are not themselves leftists. Usually so, if you try to ask the Republican Party to come up with messaging, they come up with like socialist. You know, socialist is the big yeah, one they economics. love to push. You know, socialism economics. sucks. But like, you know, you had a few more recently, like again in the Virginia election, the fight against critical race theory, you know, that was really powerful. It touched on transgenderism a bit, but not to the same extent that we're seeing right now. So the term groomer, traditionally, when people think of what a groomer is, they're thinking of a pedophile who is trying to groom kids to be his or her sexual partner. In this instance— Or to be sexually active in general. Yes, this is what naturally pops into people's minds. Now, this is not what conservatives mean when they say groomer in this particular instance. These teachers aren't necessarily grooming their students to be their sexual partners. Mm -hmm. They are grooming these kids to grow up to be gender nonconforming. Because they understand that if they can get these kids – because as if you look at us uh, at, at the polls, Gen, Gen Z is like 20 percent identifies as gender nonconforming. That's LGBTQIA+, either gay, bisexual, transgender, or they claim to be nonbinary. More than twice as many as in the millennial generation and more than twice as many as uh, 10 years ago. Yes, and like with the, with the baby boomers, it's like it's less than 2 percent mm-hmm. who claim to be a part of that gender nonconforming community, whereas it's uh, you know increased tenfold with Gen Z. And they would like to boost those numbers as high as they possibly can because they understand that gender nonconforming people are going to vote for leftists. They're going to yes. vote for people who are nontraditional because these people ultimately want to completely obliterate traditional society. They want to obliterate the the home, the, the family, like the traditional father, mother, the and children, the church. Now, the problem that leftists have is that because they're so career-focused and, of course, because they promoted feminism, they're not having children at the same rate that conservatives are having children. That's right. So by the law of attrition, they are going to be outnumbered five to one within the next 20 years simply because conservatives are having kids. They're raising their kids to be conservative. Liberals are not having children, and they're going to die off, and there's mm-hmm. going to be much uh, far fewer of them than there are conservatives. So the only solution is to groom conservative kids to become liberals in the and classroom. they have to do this in the classroom where people send their kids to get an education to succeed in the workplace. And they keep it away from their parents. And again, the time honored method that's always proven successful for them is they couch it in the rhetoric of, oh, everything you thought you knew is wrong. We're liberating you. We're teaching you to think critically and open up new avenues and explore the world for yourself. Everything that your parents said, everything that your pastor, that your church told you, oh, that's the old way of thinking. Be free. Be independent. Because lots of, you know, we all know teenagers go through those rebellious phases and whatnot. They just want to rebel against whatever is cool, whatever's popular. It's almost like just a built-in hipster complex. But they want to rebel against their parents. The, most kids go through that. And these teachers pander to that. And most importantly, what you said is, you know, they're grooming them to be, you know, to question them, their gender identity and be sexually active. And then you have cases like that Texas case where the divorced couple, the mom and the dad, the dad, they have a son. The dad is just spending his weekends with him normally. And the mom, when she's with the son, is teaching him to be a girl and to wear dresses and calling him by a different name. The father finds out about it. He films himself uh, questioning his son, you know, very innocently, but revealing the son, revealing what mom does. They go to court and the judge rules in the mom's favor and the mom gets to have the kid and she gets to transition the kid. And the, and the father has to pay for the transition. Yes. And 
And calling it grooming is so powerful. And it's important because the word this word didn't just come out of nowhere. This is something that has been around on the right for a few years now. Going back, of course, here in America, I think prior to this, it was most often seen on the really fringe elements of the far right, the internet right, namely the QAnon crowd with the whole satanic, pedophile, global cabal cult nonsense. Like they're grooming children to be, you know, prostitutes the moment they're born, stuff like they're harvesting fetuses for sexual blood, all that, you know, Alex Jones stuff, whatever. But also it was used a little further back in the mid 2010s in a handful of European countries, primarily the UK and a few others. Again, with elements of the so-called far right, you know, like Tommy Robinson in the UK is a prime example, in reference not to, you know, uh, transgender stuff, in reference to Muslim migrants, who, of course, in the peaked in the mid-2010s with uh, the Syrian civil war, the migrants that were just flooding into Europe, flooding into France and the UK, and famously, of course, creating no-go zones. Remember that? They were basically self-segregating into entirely Muslim-only neighborhoods. And in addition to that, there were Muslim grooming gangs, grooming gangs rosing, roaming around the streets, you know, preying on young European women, teenagers, young adults, even little girls, because, you know, child brides are a thing in Islam, and grooming them to be Muslim brides and to have Muslim children. So that was a thing. But, of course, in both of these cases, justifiably in the QAnon case, but not so justified in the European case because that was a real thing. But in both cases, the media dismissed and said, oh, these are far-right, anti-Semitic, homophobic, neo-Nazi, white supremacists, misogynistic, you know, whatever. Every slur they can think of. Conspiracy theories. Dismiss them. So they were only really used by the French. But now it's finally happening. It's happening on such a large scale. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it through Disney. We're seeing it through these teachers on TikTok. It's becoming so apparent they can't run away from it. And again, the same general crowd that was going after critical race theory, again, Chris Rufo and others, are calling this out as well because it's very much the other side of the coin as critical race theory. It's just using gender and sexuality instead of race. And it's become so apparent that you have no choice but to just call them what they are. And again, it is the simplest, most straightforward message because like critical race theory, if you get down and bog down in the weeds of the terminology, the acronyms with 52 letters and all that stuff and gender identity, fluidity, whatever, most people will just kind of scratch their heads and be like, wait, wait, what is all this? It's biology. I don't understand. If you just say they're grooming your kids, most people understand what that means right, right. and they will run with it. And you will have something like in Virginia. If, like, like, For example, if the Virginia election were being held today and Youngkin were hitting on the same issues now, critical race theory and transgenderism, he'd win by at least five points, I think. So let's go to the Never Trump Conservative Inc. establishment and their take on all of this. So one example is a guy named Matt Lewis. You may remember that. He was once ostensibly conservative. He was with the Daily Caller before he left Daily Caller to join the Daily Beast after Trump got elected. He is another one of these guys that these mainstream media outlets love to have on as a so-called conservative. Like CNN does this with Anna Navarro every time they have her on. They say, we have a conservative Republican here who doesn't like Trump. You know, we have our token, even though these people are not conservatives in any sense of the word. So for the Daily Beast, that bastion of conservatism, he writes, quote, MAGA's to conservatives, you're with us or you're a groomer. That's the headline. He writes, the promiscuous use of the term groomer in political conversation is the latest escalation in our already toxic political environment. I know because I have firsthand knowledge. Wait, you have firsthand knowledge of grooming kids? Like, <laughs> man, that, that's what I take away from it. Phrasing there, buddy. It's like you said, Jacob, these people cannot write to save their lives. On Wednesday, I called the term groomer a slur, which led to many people or bots. That's, I love they always just default to, oh, they must be bots. In the manga Twitter sphere, hurling at me. I'm hardly the only one, and the taunting is not reserved for nameless trolls. Author and anti-critical race theory thought leader James Lindsay called David Frum, David French, and conservative writer Nate Hawkman, probably not a real conservative then if you think he is, he called them groomers for similar reasons. 
based James Lindsay. Let's go. Um, in other words, MAGA maniacs. Oh, cute alliteration there, Matty boy. MAGA maniacs are saying to conservatives, you're either with us all the way or you're a groomer. My tweet went viral because it angered Christina Peshaw, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' press secretary, who pushed it into her Twitter timeline, adding, Hey, Matt, please educate me. What's the politically correct term for an adult who advocates for instructing young children about concepts like pansexual and gender fluid while keeping secrets from their parents? End quote. That's true. Everything she just said is true. What else do you call that if you're trying to teach this to little kids? Because, again, let's go back to the Florida law. The Florida law, the, the parental rights law that they call Don't Say Gay Bill, what they're all getting their panties in a twist about. The law dictates that sexually inappropriate content will not be taught in Florida public schools in the grades of kindergarten through third grade. K through third grade. So definitely prepubescent children, nowhere near close to their teenage years yet, being taught about transgenderism and sexuality is bad. That's what the law says. And that's what they're getting all worked up about. But they conveniently leave that part out. Of course, Matt leaves that out as well. He goes on, he rebuts this with, quote, if we are talking about little kids in a public school, I would call that wrong, wholly inappropriate, and indoctrination. And I will not defend this indoctrination. I'm a conservative. I live in a red state, blah, 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 whatever. At the same time, I believe that words have defined meanings. This is the same point I made when I criticized Joe Biden for redefining language, including the terms bipartisan and court packing. Google the word grooming, he says. The literal meaning has to do with brushing and cleaning. Okay, all right. You want to go there, like, fine. Okay, <laughs> okay. That, that's semantics. Of course, semantics is one of the favorite things to run to, is to say, like, oh, words have set definitions, and you can never, ever change the original definition of a word. All right, boy, then what about uh, the word gay? Remember, the Jacob, you know the original definition of the word gay, like, way back when? Well, it's funny. You it means watch, happy. Yeah, you, you watch any black and white movie, they throw the word gay around all the time, back yeah. when it had its innocent meaning. In the Flintstones opening theme song, it ends with, we'll have a gay old time. So are the Flintstones homosexuals now? Is that what they're going for here? Like, no. So this guy's definition, this idea is like, oh, you can't change the definition of a word for it. A word is the same throughout all of history. That's essentially his argument, which obviously does not hold up in the slightest. So uh, he just goes on. Today's right is taking a page from the Saul Alinsky radical left handbook, which says, make the enemy live up to its own book of rules. Which it's about damn time. It's true. He writes like it's a bad thing. Saul Alinsky was a terrible person, obviously, but he had smart rules. The rules worked for the left and they should work for us. He ends the article with this. In response, some on the right are hurling a horrific insult at anyone who disagrees with their tactics. It's hard to see how this ends well. Well, gee, if the left is any indication, I'd say that tactic works pretty darn well. Wouldn't you agree, well, Jacob? See, the difference between him and people who the, – the MAGAs, as he calls them, is the, the conservatives like him who live – of course, he lives in Alexandria, Alexandria, Virginia. Of course he does. Uh, these these, these uh, conservatives who live in dark, dark blue areas, they want to live in a world where everyone is polite – Everyone who makes political opinions is educated. They all sit across and sip tea, you know, like the, this is uh, – we're all in an English manor or whatever. The problem they don't understand is this is an actual culture war. Like they want to live in a world without a culture war. And look, he, he, he makes the argument that conservatives will claim that leftists started the culture war, so we have to finish it. And he fundamentally rejects that, and this is the, what all the never-Trumpers do. They fundamentally reject the notion that conservatives have to respond when they're attacked in the culture war. That we can take the high ground and the vast majority of normal Americans will see that we're taking the high ground. And because they're fundamentally good people, they will side with us. The problem is all those fundamentally good people out there, all those good normie Americans, they don't receive the news 
in a fair and balanced way. So they don't understand what teachers are teaching their children unless we fight back using the Saul Alinsky tactics that were used against us. Even National Review doesn't get it. They write the, uh, the groomer accusation is counterproductive. And of course, they, and they write, uh, this is by uh, David Harsanyi, groomer has become the fashionable charge to level against anyone who opposes Florida's parental rights bill, yada, yada, yada. And he basically makes the argument that, yes, the left is evil. Yes, what they're doing is evil. Yes, they are being groomers, but let's don't call them groomers. That's don't the don't, art of, don't that's, call them names. Yeah, let's don't call them names because this is disingenuous. And he argues that this isn't the correct definition of the word. The correct definition of the word is a pedophile who is grooming a kid to be a pedophile. And this isn't – or to be sexually active. And this isn't correct. And he's basically arguing that he, – he's using the same argument against the right when it comes to the word groomer that the right uses against the left when it comes to racism. But do you think that leftists say, okay, you know, you're right. We shouldn't throw around the word racist. No, of course, of course not. not. It works. Your average normie out there doesn't agree with racism. They don't know what racism is, but they don't agree with it because they've been <laughs> taught that you can lose your job if you're accused of being a racist. So they're not going to say anything that can be perceived by activists as racist. If someone says, don't say that, that's racist, they will shut up. I'm talking about your average normie will shut up and they'll say, okay, I'll never say that word again if that's racist, even if it's not racist. It's just they, they've been taught, they've been educated to believe that if it's if you know what's good for you, you will not be racist. Now, what is racist? They don't know. But if someone says something is racist, you don't go there. And so he's arguing we don't need to do this with the word groomer. I completely disagree. I think this is a fantastic tactic. Just throw the word groomer around, make it stick because it's going to stick. Nobody wants to be known as being a groomer. And the thing is, they can't sue you over this. Exactly. Because they can argue, like, uh, who's the guy that the day around me real quick, the Daily Beast guy, the author that you just read? Matt Lewis. So, like, the argument that Matt Lewis makes in his article is that this could be, this is a potential lawsuit. You know, this is libel and stuff. But it's not. It, 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 even he concedes. Libel laws that in the United States are very weak. Yeah, he concedes that it's very ambiguous. Uh, and it, uh, he concedes it's very ambiguous and you can, um, you know, you can get away with it because the definition that we're using for groomer is someone who is grooming kids to be gender nonconforming. To be sexually active, to be sexually degenerate, to potentially get mutilated in surgery and with hormone treatment. So this is a perfect description, in my opinion, uh, by putting the OK groomer on yes. these people is yes. the best tactic that the right has used in my entire lifetime. There Again, there's nothing more powerful than saying they are coming for your kids. And it was one thing, again, in Virginia with critical race theory, we saw it with, you know, they're teaching your kids to hate themselves for being white and to treat, you know, the, their black classmates as better than them, to to look at their black classmates as perpetual victims and to look at themselves as perpetual oppressors. And they're telling them to also, they're telling their your kids to hate you if you dare to criticize us and say this is bad then they'll think oh mommy and daddy must be racist so now it's the same thing except with gender you know they're teaching you you there is no such thing as gender you can be whatever you want and if your parents try to tell you otherwise then they're enforcing their you know patriarchal worldview on you or some such nonsense and this works again thanks to uh, thanks to covid one of the silver linings of covid the remote learning and virtual learning allowed a window right into the critical race theory that was happening and transgenderism again was on the radar as well in Virginia. You know, famously you had the Loudoun County case where a tranny, you know, a boy identifying as a girl raped two different girls, two freshman girls in two different schools. And the, the school district covered it up because it was right before pride month, you know, the LGBTQ XYZ barbecue KKK LMAO crowd in June. And it was very powerful in Virginia and it is going to happen. I think that's definitely going to have an impact nationwide and they have no argument for it. Their only argument is to either say, oh, you're transphobic, you're intolerant or they, 
or they just say, oh, it's not really happening, which obviously the evidence speaks for itself. It is happening. I so cannot wait for November. If this keeps up the way it is, it's going to be fabulous. Every campaign ad, every attack ad, okay, groomer. That's all that needs to be said. On that note, that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. Look at the full list of social media websites and podcast platforms where we are available at righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, guys, if you are feeling ever so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.